I hope uh, that wherever you are, you really are joining with us uh, in this whole gathering of corporate worship um, so that as we few who are able to be here in the building right now are, are offering uh, this truth about God and his works to him in music that you really join us where you are. When we, uh, when we offer God uh, that kind of worship, we're, there's both a vertical and a horizontal factor in that. We are expressing praise to God and declaring that we believe the truth about him and his works. But we're also teaching one another. Paul indicates that in Colossians chapter 3 when he talks about it. And, and so if we're teaching one another, we're also teaching ourselves. We're reminding ourselves. We're confessing what is true, what God has revealed to be true. And, and that's an important thing that we do. And thus ends the preamble to today's sermon. As was true last week, before I speak, I have to say a few things. I hope that all of you who are mothers do have a wonderful day today, uh, being properly uh, honored, thanked. I hope you have a wonderful day in, in so many ways. But I don't do Mother's Day sermons. The most principled reason for that is that I, I, I don't think Hallmark uh, should set the church calendar for us. And so while it's appropriate that we set aside a special day every year to honor mothers, uh, as a part of the church year, uh, I'm not so sure that the whole service has to be focused on that. Nevertheless, I hope you have a wonderful day. But Mother's Day does remind us that the life of the family is important. And as it happens in God's providence, as we make our way through the first epistle of Peter, we come today to a text that does address the life of the family. In particular, it addresses wives and husbands. Frankly, um, to talk about a biblical text that addresses wives and husbands and uses language like Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands is, frankly, a dangerous topic. Um, it's, it's one that's fearful to talk about in public, in our time and place. And so the coward in me said, Stan, just go ahead and do something else in First Peter and ignore that one. But I think the better part of me said, Lord, it's all your word. It's all important. And, and it's all highly relevant. We need to think about these things. We need, we need to try to gain some sort of clarity about how we do relate to one another as husbands and wives. And so, to that end, we are listening to the Apostle Peter as he, the mouthpiece of the Lord, instructs us. And so I read from 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, it's tempting to say that makes all things clear and let's have the benediction, but, but we really need to try to think it through. So, first six verses, Peter addresses wives. Seventh verse addresses husbands. To wives, he says, accept your husband's headship. Does, now, Peter doesn't use the word head. Paul's the one who uses that word, but the, the concept, of course, is still here. And so he says to wives, accept your husband's headship, uh, submit to that order of things, even if he is an unbeliever. Now, if you notice, this text begins with wives in the same way or likewise. Verse 7, husbands likewise. To go back to chapter 2, verse 18, the text we were looking at last week, slaves also are likewise. All of it goes back to 2.13, where Peter has said, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, the NIV reads, every human structure, the structures of human life. So he starts with deferring to governing authorities. Slaves, defer to your masters. Wives to husbands. And husbands similarly live within the order of marriage in a way that is right and profitable and, as we will see, in a way that builds up your wife. So Peter is saying God's people are indeed the holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are waiting for our hope at the return of our Lord and, and the fullness of, of eternal salvation. He makes that point right at the beginning of the letter. But he is saying, while we wait for the fullness of salvation and, and the return of our Lord in glory, we are called to live rightly within the structures of of God's creation within the structures of human life in this age. One of those structures is the marital relationship. And so here we have another application of what started back in 2.13, in the marital structure of human life. And so Peter says to wives, be willing to accept subordination to that order of a kind of male headship in the marriage. Now, as we'll see, that, that, that's not like master and slave. But submit to that. And so he says that generally. And then he says, 
so that even if your husband is not a believer, if your husband doesn't believe the word, the gospel, your husband may be won over to the Lord without words, by your behavior, by what he calls the purity and the reverence of your lives. And then Peter makes the point, it's about your character and your lifestyle. It's about what's really inside you that manifests itself outwardly. It's not about merely external beauty. For he says, you don't let your beauty be all about outward adornment like elaborate hairstyles, gold jewelry, and, and the clothing you wear. Now, some historically, and some still, uh, a very tiny minority of the church, but some still would say, so the Bible teaches us that women should not wear gold jewelry. So I'd have to say, okay, stop. Those of you who have it on, take it off. Um, and, and, and you must not wear clothes with designer labels. That's wrong. But that's not really Peter's point. Actually, the, the language he uses is, don't let your beauty be uh, hairstyles, wearing gold jewelry, and putting on clothes. Peter is clearly not saying, don't put on clothes. He is saying, do not let the jewelry or the clothing you wear or the nature of your hairstyle, do not let your external beauty be the primary thing about you. You may be tempted, Peter. I think Peter is saying to women, you may be tempted to do that because you think that your husband can see better than he can think. But that's not what your husband should really be attracted to. My, my wife and I have noticed um, when, when watching uh, the TV news that some of the female TV news anchors are overdone in terms of makeup. And, and we both said, she, she's a very naturally attractive woman, but this looks totally unnatural, totally artificial. And, and what counts about them is, is that they're intelligent and articulate and able to do the job well. It's not the outward beauty. And, and so sometimes even the attempt to, to create an outward beauty backfires. It's counterproductive. In any case, Peter says, you, you may be able to win your unbelieving husband by, by your character. What he calls the, verse 4, your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, Peter's not saying it's guaranteed. If, if, if you wives who have unbelieving husbands just live the right way, guaranteed they will come to faith. It's not saying that. That would be overpromising. Back in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses believers whose spouse are, is not a believer. And he says, 
How do you know whether you will win that one? You don't know that. You can't guarantee that. In fact, in that text, he says, the unbeliever may unfortunately walk away. You may have to accept that hard reality. But the way to win that husband, he says, is, is not, not by thinking if you, if you put on enough gaudy external beauty, you will win him. You win him by the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that might make your husband ask, what produces that wonderful character? And might recognize it's the Lord. And so he says, you, you wives, you, you may, if you accept his headship, live within that structure with the right kind of attitude. If you live the life, you may win him over without words. Now, you, you may have heard the saying attributed to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. There, there, are, there are two things fundamentally wrong with that. Number one, it's not at all clear that Francis of Assisi ever said that. Now, I, I didn't know him personally, but um, the historians that I respect would say, it, it's, a, it's, it's a legend that's arisen somehow, but we don't know that he ever said such a thing. Secondly, gospel means good news. Good news has to be spoken in words. And the issue for that unbelieving husband is the word, the gospel, because he describes them as those who don't believe the word. If they're going to be saved, they have to believe the word, the gospel. But the point is, Peter's addressing wives and saying, you may, you may attract your husband to the Lord, to the message that he presently rejects, when he recognizes that the message he presently rejects produces in you the character that he admires. That's the point. And, and Peter reinforces all this by saying, look, think back to the holy women of old who put their hope in God, and, and that's the way they lived. They, they submitted themselves to their own husbands. And so he goes back to, Abraham, the father of the faithful, Sarah, the mother of the faithful, you might say. And he says, she obeyed Abraham. Abraham was no perfect husband, as the book of Genesis makes clear. She obeyed Abraham, called him her, her Lord. And you need to be daughters of Sarah and do likewise. Now, let me just say, in case any of you are wondering my wife does not call me Lord. Okay. Just, just putting that out there so you understand. And, and the, to think about that rightly, we need to recognize the term Lord is used in a variety of ways historically, used in a variety of ways in the Bible. And, and sometimes, so the Greek word kyrios, which we have here, sometimes... It means a master. Sometimes it refers to Christ himself, or God the Father even. Sometimes the Greek word kyrios, though, is simply used to mean something like sir. So it has, it has a variety of, of meanings. Um, 
In the same way that if we were, if, if I were talking to someone who's a member of the House of Lords in Great Britain, I mean, I, I suppose I, I might have to address him as Lord so-and-so, but he would know and I would know that I don't, I'm not using Lord there in the same sense that I use it when I talk about Jesus, the Son of God. So it's just a word of, of respect. Now, we need to note that this, this biblical picture about wives who, who accept the headship of husband is, is not that of a woman who is kept out of the picture, in the background, silenced. It's not that. It's not barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. For example, when you go back to the book of Proverbs, early on in Proverbs, um, Solomon, I take it, is, is speaking and saying, my son, listen to your father's instruction. And parallel to that says, my son, listen to your mother's instruction. And in the text that we heard earlier from Proverbs 8, wisdom, which is crying out to human beings to not be foolish, but in the fear of God to accept wisdom from him, wisdom is personified as female, lady wisdom. And then when you come to the end of the book of Proverbs in chapter 31, we have this, this long description about 22 verses, I think, about the excellent wife whose values are far beyond whatever could be amassed in terms of wealth to pay for it. Now, obviously, that's an idealized picture where, you know, you do understand probably no, no woman in human history has ever fulfilled all those details to perfection. It's a bit of an idealized picture, but the picture of the ideal wife is, is of a woman who speaks words of wisdom which are, are valued by her family. She is viewed as an industrious woman who uh, creates things that she sells for profit. Her husband is said to trust in her even to the point that she is said to consider a field and buy it. Her husband trusts her to buy real estate. So we, we aren't talking here about a master-slave relationship. We aren't talking about women who are simply kept in the background. If you want an analogy, I would suggest, if you, you can think of the husband-wife relationship like that of, say, president and vice president of a company. The fact that the vice president in the organizational chart defers to the president doesn't mean that the vice president has an insignificant role. Simply, uh, when the president speaks and says jump, and says how high, never, never challenges, never asks questions, that would not be a, a fruitful company if a competent vice president was just a yes person. So it could be like president, vice president. It could be like husband is chairman of this committee of two. And, and you just sort of accept that reality and then, and then get on with life together rather than constantly asking, okay, now what does it mean? 
It's certainly never defined in Scripture in terms of anything like, well, that means that the husband does these tasks and the wife does these tasks. It's not like, I mean, the, the husband takes out the garbage, but the wife always changes all the diapers. I thought it ought to be that way early on. And then I got mugged by reality and, and realized, no, actually, I, I'm going to have to help out with some of those things. So we need to understand it, it clearly. Now, some would say, and some are saying, hey, you're, you're taking all this to be timeless and transcultural. Remember, this comes in a series of exhortations, and this one follows the one about slavery, about slaves submitting to masters. So isn't it true that just as we rightly have moved beyond slavery, we also are called to move beyond patriarchy and a special headship of husbands. Now, that's an honest question that, that really deserves an honest answer. Here's, here's, here's a start on the answer to that. In this text, the, the, the exhortation to wives is stated generally. It's not just a strategy about dealing with unbelieving husbands. It's stated generally first, and then it's an even if the husband is an unbeliever. So it's not just about a strategic approach to an unbelieving husband. And then Peter uses the example of Sarah as a way of saying, look, I mean, this is the way it always has been with holy women. It's also true that when we look more broadly at the apostles' teaching, like Ephesians 5, we see that the, the pattern of the relationship of husband and wife is said to have spiritual significance. A tangible, daily picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So it's, it's a spiritually significant matter. The other thing is we need to recognize that Paul and Peter, as apostles of Christ, as authoritative spokesmen, when they speak about slavery, they, they never say anything like, slavery is a good thing and it ought to be. They never say that. But they do say that kind of thing about the, the husband-wife order. And they never quote scripture to support slavery. I mean, they could. They could have quoted from Mosaic Law and said, see, within Mosaic Law, God accepts slavery. Just, you know, make sure it's a good kind of slavery. They never say that. They never quote Scripture to support it. But they do, as Peter does here. They, they go back to Scripture to say, That's, this is the way it ought to be. So what I'm suggesting is the way that the apostles talk about slavery masters and slaves, and the way they talk about husbands and wives is not the same. There, there's a, there's a, an order, a rightness about the husband-wife order that they, that they never talk about with regard to slavery. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you slaves have the opportunity to get your freedom, then take advantage of that. Do it. Now, I under, I, I'm... Tr I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of a wife hearing all this. And I understand that 
It may jolt you to, to use words like that. The reason it can work is verse 7. What Peter says to husbands. To husbands, he says, understand and honor your wife. So, first of all, I, let me suggest a little different way of translating it than my NIV does. I think in the first part, I think it's, it's best put together this way. Husbands, live with your wives in accordance with knowledge as with the weaker vessel. Understand the difference between male and female. And, it, and it's live with her in accordance with knowledge. Now, the NIV translates be considerate or understanding. But it's not just about a kind of a, a, a positive attitude. It's literally in accordance with acquired knowledge. Think about who your wife is. Learn who she is, where she has come from, what makes her tick. Learn everything you can about her, and in particular, as the weaker vessel, which probably is about physical weakness and, and a related sense of relational weakness or powerlessness. If men are, in general, physically able to overpower women, then, then it's, we recognize that women may feel a kind of powerlessness. So Peter is saying to, to men, do not use the excuse, women, who can understand them? I don't know if I ever said that. It's possible that at some point in my earlier life, I might have said something like that. But, Paul's, but Peter is saying, don't use that as an excuse. Just, just as you can grow in your knowledge of a lot of other things, you can grow in your knowledge of your wife. Learn to understand her experiences, her hopes, her preferences, her sensitivities, or how she hears things. So he's saying, listen, observe, or even take her place for a day. Try to understand. Now, now note he talks about as the weaker vessel, which, which is sort of just about saying the obvious, really, about physical weakness and some of the implications of that. But being weaker doesn't mean being less valuable. If you have a piece of fine china, that, that is a whole lot weaker, a whole lot more breakable than metal things you have lying around. But you probably consider that fine china a whole lot more valuable than uh, metal things you have lying around. And so he's certainly not saying, I mean, you know, she's less valuable. He's saying she's very valuable and you need to live with her in a way that understands who she is. Now, I, I wish I could say that in my almost 53 years of marriage, I have learned everything I ought to about my wife, about these realities. I think I've learned 
a few things, and some things I'm still learning. One of the things I've learned, it took me a long time to start picking up on this, was, was to learn how my wife hears certain things that I say. Now, if I'm, if I'm at the seminary with faculty colleagues, and, and one of us throws an idea out there in discussion, what that means is, wow, there's an idea there that all of us can pounce on and, and poke around and question and ask, now what does that really mean? Is it really true? And, and what would that mean? What are the implications of all that? And so, and so there's this, this dialogue that goes back and forth as we wrestle with each other, as we wrestle with that idea. My wife is not a faculty colleague. And, and so when my wife floats an idea that I think is really interesting, to which I then say, oh, yeah, well, mm, I don't know. How did you get there exactly? No, what exactly does that mean? I don't know. Are you sure about that? My wife doesn't hear that as an invitation to a faculty happy-go-lucky free-for-all. Shock. My wife hears it as putting down my idea, which is not my intent, but that's the way she hears it, and so I've had to learn how she hears it. Peter says, try to understand, grow in understanding, and honor her. Honor her as fellow heir of God's gracious gift of life. And that's true both in terms of creation and redemption. Go back to the beginning. God created humankind in his image, male and female. He created them in his image. So as humans made in the image of God, husbands and wives are of equal value. Even if, if there's an order to their relationship, they're of equal value. And in this sphere of redemption... As Paul puts it in Galatians 3, all of us who have faith in Jesus the Messiah are Abraham's offspring and heirs of the promise to Abraham. And, and so in Christ, we don't, there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Male or female, believer, part of Abraham's offspring, heirs of the same promises for this life and the life to come. And so Peter is saying to husbands, because your wife is equal in value in terms of both creation and redemption, you need to value her insights and wisdom, to trust her wisdom and skills. Like that husband back in Proverbs 31, who can trust his wife to go buy a field. It means speak well of her, and so on, and so on. We men need to understand that our wives have wisdom to share, and we need to honor them for that. 
even if it's wrestling with a tough decision and ultimately she may say, I'll, I'll do whatever you conclude in the end, we need to value our wives in that process. Now, I realize I, I'm speaking in a very countercultural way when I teach 1 Peter 3 straightforwardly. It's dangerous to say the stuff I've said in public, and now I've just said it for the whole world wide web to hear. But I've, I've grown accustomed to saying things that are dangerous in public. But there are fascinating studies that indicate family life lived along these lines actually produces not only husbands but wives who are satisfied. One of the most fascinating books I have read in the last several years is a book called Soft Patriarchs, New Men, written by Bradford Wilcox. Uh, he is a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. The book was published by the University of Chicago Press. So we aren't talking here about the rambling opinions of a self-styled fundamentalist preacher. It's, the book is actually it, it's built on a, a national family survey in the USA. It, it's pretty dense in places, to be obvious. But it, but it has some fascinating insights. The heart of the book is comparing um, conservative Protestant marriages and families, the kind that I'm talking about, with mainline Protestant, in other words, more liberal-type churches, those families, and religiously unaffiliated men and their families. Now, I'm, I'm tempted to read a couple of hundred pages, but just bear with me here while I read a, a few short paragraphs. In theory, many people today would say, this kind of order of husband and wife, this, this, this is what leads to abuse and trouble and disharmony. Should be an egalitarian marriage. No, there's no order of head and submissive one here. Here's, here's what he says. Many scholars have, have observed spouses who hold egalitarian beliefs about marriage and consistently act upon them have to invest considerable energy in monitoring one another's contributions to ensure that both partners are doing their fair share. Such account keeping runs counter to the enchanted logic of marriage, which depicts marital interaction as motivated by a spirit of unconditional love rather than a spirit of calculated exchange. Indeed, this account keeping can introduce a spirit of self-regard that undercuts the self-sacrificial ethic of communitarian marriage. Moreover, given differences in personal temperament, ability, and circumstance, it is difficult for spouses to make equal contributions day in and day out. But a failure to live up to this egalitarian ideology can call into question a spouse's commitment to the relationship itself. Thus, the deliberate pursuit of marital equality 
that most often guides couples who strongly embrace egalitarianism can introduce a self-interested spirit of account-keeping that undercuts marital commitment. I had suspected something like that myself, but these aren't my words. These are the words of someone who knows what he's talking about. Now, a little further on, he says this. The study, the study of this massive survey shows, compared to their unaffiliated and mainline counterparts, conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. Well, that doesn't sound like abuse. And then further he says, um, church-going family men, conservative Protestant church-going family men. By the way, that's important, the church-going part. What, what his studies show is that the conservative Protestant men who actually go to church, who actually are hearing instruction and being stimulated by other believers, are the least prone to anything like abuse. But those who affirm a kind of traditional marital relationship who don't go to church are the most abusive. So there's everything important but actually being a functioning part of God's people. Anyway, such, such men, he says, spend more time with their children they are more likely to hug and praise their children. Their wives report higher levels of satisfaction with the appreciation, affection, and understanding they, they receive from their husbands, and they spend more time socializing with their wives. Now, I, I will confess, he goes on to point out that the conservative Protestant men spend a bit less time doing household labor than mainline Protestant men. But he will also talk about how their, their wives actually appreciate what the husbands do contribute. So, he says, in some then, conservative Protestantism clearly has played a role in slowing the gender revolution. In other words, slowing a movement toward egalitarianism. Nevertheless, Given its attentiveness to the emotional domain of family life, its role has, has been a curious one in that the women most affected by its traditional influence seem to be enchanted rather than alienated by their encounter with this family strategy. And so he suggests that in the end, this what he calls neo-traditional kind of family order may, may become even more influential in North American life. May it be so. Peter has made clear that as God's holy nation, we, we are called to demonstrate a radical quality of love. As a witness to the world around us, among other things, because it's right, but also as a witness to the world around us, part of that witness is in the way husbands and wives relate to one another. 
around us in our cultural setting, many people are delaying marriage forever and ever and ever by choice, and others are still just opting out. We have a chance to show there's a better way forward. Let's pray. Father, we've spoken today especially about the marital relationship, and yet we recognize that all of our relationships with others are crucial areas where you call us to love you and to love those others. And so, Lord, enable us today to understand the life you call us to, empower us by your Spirit to live it. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.